Hi, and welcome back to The Big Questions. I'm your host, Dylan Riddle, and this week we're back with a number of my colleagues at the Institute of International Finance to discuss the global growth implications of the COVID-19 pandemic. We're joined by Managing Director and Chief Economist Robin Brooks. Thanks for having me on, Dylan. Nice to be with you. Deputy Chief Economist Alina Rybakova. Thank you so much, Dylan. And Deputy Chief Economist Sergi Lanau. Hello, Dylan. Thank you. Robin, we're going to start with you. Robin, thanks for joining us. So you've downgraded global growth twice in the last two weeks. I know it's a moving target, but can you walk me through the impact of coronavirus on global growth as you see it right now? So I have lost track, but I think we've downgraded growth three times, which gives you a good idea just how fluid and crazy the situation is. To roll back the clock, two, three weeks ago, we had global growth at 2.6% for this year, and we're now at minus 1.5. So that's a global recession, the likes of which we really haven't seen since the global financial crisis in 2009. The forecasts that are coming out of many places at the moment should really be called scenarios because while we, I think, all agree that there's going to be a big downturn in the second quarter of this year, in many places, not just in the United States, but in the Eurozone, in the UK, and many other places, what we don't really know at all is how quickly we can recover in the second half of 2020. And so, What we are assuming in our forecast is a very cautious recovery in the second half of the year that leaves big output gaps in the United States and the Eurozone and other countries. And so, you know, this is really not a V-shape. It's kind of like an L that's kind of on its side with the short end pointing up. What I would say also is that this shock, even though it's a global one and it's a global pandemic, it's hitting different places differently. And some places are going into this shock in weaker positions. So we think the Eurozone is very vulnerable because some of the countries in the Eurozone are going in with weaker conditions. Italy, Spain, both had big output gaps going into this. And so that's not ideal. And then we have some emerging markets that, for a number of reasons, are entering this shock and stress situation. So we flagged Argentina and South Africa, but the list is broader. Mexico, for example, last year failed to grow. And so obviously going into a shock like this, absent growth is a tricky situation. We're going to speak with Alina and Sergi in a little bit about the emerging market impact, but I'd like to hone in on Japan, the Eurozone, and the U.S. Obviously, in the U.S. this week, we've seen massive fiscal stimulus. Is all of this going to work? What's the best case scenario for these developed markets, and how bad could it really get there? Yeah, so the stimulus is definitely welcome. It's been impressive to see lawmakers come together and hustle this through. Of course, we've had lots of stimulus from the Fed as well. That's also very welcome. I have been amazed at how proactive the Fed and other central banks have been. What I would say is the following, the especially in the United States, what we really need to calm markets down and you know, we're seeing up down moves on the order of 10%. It's been a super rocky time. What markets really want here is an understanding of how big the problem is, how widespread infections are, how bad the overload in the health system will get. And so you can really only provide that kind of information and certainty if you do widespread testing. And I would say that is the piece of the puzzle here in the United States that's still missing. 
It will allow markets to project how far this pandemic will go, how long it will last, and how many resources it will take. And, and then I think once markets have that information, they will calm down. The other big unknown that we are struggling with and that, frankly, no one has an answer to is how this will change human behavior. This is a huge shock. It's something that we haven't seen in maybe forever. And we don't know how risk-averse households and businesses will become as a result. To give you an idea, after the global financial crisis, which was a similarly unexpected and huge shock, households drastically changed their saving behavior. They saved much more. They became, behaved much more precautionary. And so it's possible that that will happen this time around as well. And so that's really the reason that we're forecasting very gradual and slow recoveries after a big drop in activity in Q1 and Q2. Yeah, I think hitting on the uncertainty point is really important, right? That's the scariest part of this for a lot of people, whether it be the uncertainty of am I going to get sick or the financial uncertainty as well? Am I going to have a job to come back to or am I going to get paid during this time where I'm in quarantine? Yeah, I think it's really important. In economics and finance, there's something called survivorship bias, and it basically describes the fact that the world that we see is really a world of mostly healthy people. You know, we only confront illness when a member of the family or a friend or a celebrity gets sick. And this is definitely something that hits very close to home, right? So it could be a big game changer in terms of behavior. Thank you so much for joining us, Robin. I hope we could have cleared up some of the uncertainty for our listeners. I'm sure we'll be touching base with you later on in this crisis to get some more insights. Thanks a lot. Stay healthy. Turning now to my colleague, Alina Rybakova, also a deputy chief economist here at the Institute of International Finance. Alina, thanks for joining us. You released an updated outlook for emerging Europe and sub-Saharan Africa. Do you mind walking us through what you're seeing in those two regions? Well, we're very concerned about the shock, the immediate shock of the virus that is affecting the region. And of course, it's affecting the region unevenly. We talk about the Simia region, but it's extremely diverse. It's ranging from uh, Central Eastern European countries, which are extremely plugged in into the European value chains and, of course, the tourism sector, and those are very exposed, all the way to smaller frontier economies in Africa, which for now appear isolated but will also probably experience the shock of the virus and their risks to the healthcare systems are bigger. If you look at the Central Eastern Europe there, it's very big contrast to the 2008 crisis when they didn't have the buffers. Right now they have the policy buffers and their financial systems are much more stable. So although the optics will be very poor and will have dramatic contractions in growth in Central Eastern European countries, we're not expecting to see a full blown out crisis anywhere in those. On the other hand, if we're looking down across the region, for example, South Africa, we are somewhat concerned about debt sustainability. South Africa is coming into this contraction, into this global shock of a pandemic, unfortunately, with the fiscal position that is not very strong. The central bank can help the economy by cutting rates, which they have done already. It's extremely credible central bank. But of course, they will need to have an eye on fiscal sustainability. And therefore, they already started quantitative easing of sorts in order to help alleviate pressure on the funding needs for the government. Moving on to Turkey, Turkey entered this crisis period with extremely strong growth momentum, and therefore it could possibly hold up. But we see even there a risk of recession, and probably the authorities will roll out all their policy tools on the fiscal and the monetary front in order to be able to cushion growth. 
So I want to zoom in on Russia, one of the larger economies that you cover. I know you spent a lot of time and they've spent a lot of time and money trying to steel themselves against external shocks. But now that you have the combination of an oil price war and the COVID-19 pandemic, how will they fare through this and, and kind of how do those two external shocks impact them? Well, thank you very much for bringing up the case of Russia, because it's indeed not only an emerging economy, a big global player, but also it is a large commodity exporter. It's, in fact, one of the largest suppliers of oil to the global markets. Russia is prepared much better. And I think here the key is the flexible exchange rate regime, which puts Russia aside from many other commodity exporters. The flexible exchange rate regime, which Russia didn't have during the previous shocks of 2008 and 2014, is an extremely important factor to help shelter the economy from the shock. So it also helps on the budget. In the pure mathematical way, depreciated ruble means higher revenues in ruble terms from the oil experts for the budget. So we do expect a contraction in Russia, but we expect it to be somewhat smaller. Comparing to the previous crisis, they won't have to have such contractionary policies as they had to do before. In the past, they were forced to spend reserves, tighten liquidity conditions, high rates, almost you know, 900 bips in the last crisis. In order to protect the currency, they do not have to do that. The currency has depreciated. We're not too worried about financial stability concerns. However, we are worried about the healthcare aspect of this. Because of the prudent fiscal policies and budget cuts, healthcare systems in Russia, especially in the regions, might find themselves underfunded for this pandemic, and therefore taking early preventative measures is critical. Awesome. That's great insight. Thank you so much, Alina. Thank you. And finally, Sergi Lanau. Sergi, thanks for joining us. Your report this week focused on non-China, EM Asia, and Latin America. What are you seeing there growth-wise? So what is happening in these two regions is a bit what we are seeing everywhere in EM, which is a long-standing uh, problem to grow at high rates and low investment. So when the shock hits and the virus spreads, it is a challenging situation because of these weak starting conditions. And of course, because all emerging markets have strong links to the global economy, via supply chains, especially in Asia, or commodity exports, which is more the case in Latin America. What we are going to see in emerging Asia is not an outright recession, but is the lowest growth rate since the Asian financial crisis of 1997-98. So clearly a very challenging situation, even for high-value-added sectors like technology that have done really well in the last couple of decades. Latin America perhaps suffers even more than Asia from the weak starting conditions problem. This is critical in countries like Brazil and Mexico that have already struggled very hard to grow in the last few years. They all depend, generally speaking in the region, on commodities which have fallen a lot in price. So we expect recessions in pretty much all the countries we cover and quite complicated situations in places like Argentina that were already trying to come out of a different crisis that was more based on local problems.
Looking more at EM Asia, some of the countries like Vietnam, South Korea, Singapore, they seem to get a handle on the COVID-19 outbreak fairly quickly. How does this complicate their economic situation, given that they are very tied with China, who obviously has had a much different scenario? So as you say, these countries were very good at containing the spread of the virus in the initial stages, and that's obviously positive. But they're still exposed to two sides of this global shock. One is the China and global demand aspect of it. China was also good at containing the virus, but we've seen that it comes at a big economic cost. Activity needs to essentially stop for a few weeks. And this hits other countries. And the closer you are to China in terms of your production structure, the more you suffer. And of course, all these countries you mentioned are in global supply chains that go through China. So this is an issue for them, despite having controlled so far the spread of the virus. And the other side of the global shock, which is also completely independent of how much you've contained the virus in your own country, is that financial markets are not in good shape anywhere, in part because we are seeing the virus spread in many major economies. And that makes it a lot more difficult for companies and governments in Vietnam, Korea, and everywhere to continue funding themselves. And it will have an impact on growth in coming months. So good that they could contain the virus. There will still be lots of spillovers from difficult global conditions into all these very dynamic emerging economies in Asia. That was great, Sergi. Really helpful. Thank you, Dylan. And again, thank you to Alina and Robin. This has been a really insightful conversation for me, and I hope that you enjoyed it as well. It's an interesting time and things are moving quickly. We'll be back soon to ask more big questions. Until then, thank you for joining us and please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. Thank you.